0: Due to the graphic nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Anne Hawley is just six months into her job as director of Boston's Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum when she gets the call. It's early in the morning on March 18, 1990, and her security team thinks there's been a break-in. Holly doesn't stop to think. She races to the museum in her jeans. When she gets there, the courtyard is already crawling with police. Holly speeds into the galleries, and what she sees knocks the wind out of her. The floor is covered in shattered glass. Furniture is overturned. Empty frames have been thrown to the ground. Frayed bits of canvas clinging on where paintings were brutally cut away. Priceless works of art haven't just been stolen, they've been destroyed. I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for years, will explore a vast array of offenses, from burglary to arson to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long-dormant cases. Others will still be left searching for the truth. Today, we're discussing two cold cases. In 1990, Boston's Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum fell victim to the largest art heist in the world. The following year, in the same city, a wannabe mobster named Bobby Donati was murdered. The crimes seemed like they were unrelated, but many believe they're actually deeply intertwined. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
1: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
0: In the late 1980s, many of Boston's neighborhoods are run by organized crime groups. Southie and Charlestown belong to different Irish factions, and the North End is the Italian Mafia, specifically the Patriarcha family. The Patriarcha family has held power since the mid-1950s. It's a large, powerful organization with branches and associates across New England. There's a strict hierarchy— The guys at the top give orders to those at the bottom. But when family boss Raymond Patriarca dies in 1984, things change. Raymond's son inherits the mafia throne, but people don't defer to him the same way they did his father. By the late 80s, he's struggling to maintain power. At the same time, the FBI is ramping up an aggressive campaign against organized crime in the United States. The Patriarchas aren't escaping the purge unscathed. Members keep getting arrested. The men left on the street worry someone's going to talk and put them behind bars too. Trust between associates starts to break down. The result of this instability is a small civil war, with various higher-ups in the Patriarcha family vying to take over. Two of the major players are Frank Salemi, a close confidant of Raymond Patriarca and Vincent Ferrara, better known as The Animal. Each of these men has loyal followers who think their guy is the key to the family's survival. And one of the men in Ferrara's camp is his friend and driver, Bobby Donati. Donati lives in Revere, a seaside neighborhood outside of central Boston. The location of his home parallels his role in the New England mob. He's outside the center of power, far from the top of the family hierarchy. He's not a made man, or even an official member of the mafia. Instead, he's a small-time businessman who dabbles in white-collar crime. His specialty is theft. He's been pulling robberies since his late teens, and he's had adventures over the years, some heists, some jail time. But by now, he's almost 50, His criminal enterprises have made him cozy with Boston's organized criminals, despite his tangential status. And his biggest claim to fame, his best protection, is his relationship with Vincent Ferrara. Being the young mobster's friend and driver is like placing a public bet. Donati is wagering that Ferrara will successfully take over the crime family and reward him accordingly, which is a reasonable bet. Ferrara isn't called the animal for nothing. In 1989, his people attempt a ruthless killing of his rival, Salemi, almost certainly on his orders. They riddle Salemi with bullets. He's injured, but he survives. It seems like another step on Ferrara's journey towards taking over the family. But near the end of 1989, his bid for power comes to a screeching halt. Ferrara and two of his associates fall victim to the FBI's relentless campaign. They're charged in a 57-count indictment. Their alleged crimes include racketeering, obstruction of justice, loan sharking, and murder. Ferrara is locked in a jail cell awaiting trial, which is a big problem for Bobby Donati. Without Ferrara, he's no one in the Patriarca family. He has no protection, He might even be in danger. Because after the near fatal shooting, Salemi is out for revenge. And in a mob war, revenge means one thing. He wants his enemies dead. And anyone who supports Ferrara, including Bobby Donati, is Salemi's enemy. Donati's worried about what's coming next. He's allegedly one of the first people to visit Ferrara in jail. He wants the animal back on the streets to protect him from Salemi. But Ferrara isn't getting out anytime soon. He's serving a 22-year sentence, which means Donati's on his own. And he's terrified. By 1991, a year into Ferrara's jail time, Donati has become a bit of a recluse. He's quiet, anxious. He stays at home more. That summer, he tells some friends he thinks he's being watched he saw two men in black jogging suits following him. He says, those men are going to try and kill me. And he might have been right. On September 21, 1991, 51-year-old Bobby Donati goes missing. Police find blood on his porch, but nobody near his home has seen anything. No one has a useful lead. That's typical for a mob-run neighborhood. Whether or not people have information, It's almost never worth talking to the police. In a community where intimidation, violence, and murder are the norm, snitching is the one crime that's unacceptable. Several days later, police are still searching for clues. They find Donati's white Cadillac parked a half mile from his home and open the trunk. Inside, they find Donati. He's been beaten, stabbed, and his throat has been slit. It's clear he's been murdered. But locating his body doesn't actually help police figure out who's to blame. In fact, it makes people even more scared to come forward with information. Think about it when a man is found dead in his own trunk, that's an obvious sign of mob business. It's also a kind of large scale intimidation. Neighbors know that if they talk, they could be next, so everyone's lips are sealed. And with nothing else to go on, no leads, no fingerprints, no smoking guns, investigators make an assumption. They believe Bobby Donati is a casualty of the Patriarca family infighting. Salemi or one of his men killed Donati in cold blood. And that's it. The case is cold. The case is closed. At least as far as the police are concerned. Donati's sister, Lorraine, isn't satisfied. While violence is commonplace in the mafia, she's heartbroken to hear of her brother's death, and she can't help but wonder why he was killed in such a brutal way. To her, that suggests his death was about more than misplaced loyalties and in mob infighting. She says, quote, One bullet could have accomplished what they were looking to do. No one has to be beaten and stabbed like that. Unless there was some dark secret behind it. And maybe there was. Because as we're about to find out, there's one man who says he knows that dark secret. He knows the real reason behind Denati's violent murder.
1: You tell yourself it's only a movie. None of this could ever happen to you.
0: You feel relieved until you discover what you're watching is based on actual events.
1: Hi listeners, it's Vanessa and Greg from the Spotify original from ParCast, Serial Killers. In our Halloween special, Real Horror, we're spotlighting three of the most iconic horror films of all time and telling the terrifying true stories that inspired them.
0: Recovering the real influences behind characters like Ghostface from the 90s mega-hit Scream. Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill from the Oscar-winning thriller The Silence of the Lambs and Leatherface from the 70s cult classic The Texas Chainsaw Massacre.
1: Enjoy Real Horror, the serial killer's three-part Halloween special. Listen to all three episodes the final week of October, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop?
0: Miles Connor is an old friend of Bobby Donati's. He's known around Boston for his rock and roll band, but he's better known for his particular criminal specialty, art theft. He believes Donati died for exactly that kind of crime because he's convinced. Bobby Donati was part of the biggest art theft in modern history, the 1990 break-in at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. To explain why... We need to go back in time to the early 1970s. When Miles Connor and Bobby Donati met, Connor was already a notable New England art thief, very much on the FBI's radar. Donati dabbled in small-time thievery and was curious about getting into Connor's rather exalted side of the business, so the two started working together. It's not clear exactly how many art heists they pulled off, But Connor has talked extensively about one particular target. They started casing it in the early days of their friendship, sometime in the 1970s. The Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum was a treasure trove. It housed some of the most valuable art in Boston. There was a pensive Vermeer called The Concert, which showed three figures just on the verge of singing. As of 2019, it was valued at more than $200 million dollars. There was also the storm on the sea of galilee famous for being rembrandt's only seascape plus there were some minor pieces that appealed to connor and donati connor was attracted to an ancient chinese goo a tall bronze beaker used in ritual ceremonies donati liked a bronze eagle statue called a finial from napoleonic france as they got more familiar with the museum Connor and Donati noticed how lax security was. Even from the courtyard outside, they could see into the building, taking note of the guards' routines and the placement of certain artworks. Connor and Donati figured the place would be pretty easy to rob. They even came up with an idea for how to do it. They'd throw on some fake police uniforms and ransack the place on a holiday night, when the real police were busy with rowdy Boston crowds. But the pair never actually got around to orchestrating the heist, not back in the 70s. Other crimes and jail sentences got in the way for both of them. But then while Connor was serving time for drug related crimes in 1990, someone finally broke into the gardener. It happened in March on the night of St. Patrick's Day an unofficial holiday in Boston when the police were busy breaking up drunken brawls, exactly the kind of night Connor and Donati planned to break in. Two men posing as Boston PD officers entered the museum in the wee hours of the morning. They asked the security guard to come out from behind his desk, the one place in the museum with a panic button, which could have alerted the real police to a problem. They grabbed the security guard, along with the other man on duty, and tied both of them up in the basement. Then, the thieves spent over an hour ransacking art from the galleries, which is a long time for this kind of heist. It suggests they were aware that all the museum's alarms were internal, meant to alert the now tied-up guards rather than anyone outside the building. In other words, the police weren't coming, and they knew it. The carnage was discovered in the morning when the next shift of guards arrived. Chairs were overturned, frames were thrown on the floor, canvases had been cut out of frames, and frayed edges were all that was left behind. Thirteen works of art were gone. Vermeer, Degas, Monet, Rembrandt's only seascape. The museum staff was shocked and horrified the director immediately announced a $5 million reward for information leading to the return of the artworks. Today, the total value of the hall is estimated in the high hundreds of millions. But there's really no way to quantify the priceless art that was lost. What Miles Connor notices, though, is in addition to the big names like Rembrandt and Vermeer, his and Donati's little favorites have been taken. Despite their comparatively paltry value, the Chinese goo and Napoleonic finial are gone. As far as Connor is concerned, that plus the familiarity of the plan mean one thing. Donati was part of the Isabella Stewart Gardner heist. He took his prize and one to give to Connor at some point down the line. But if that was his plan, he never gets the Chinese goo to Connor. Not before he's found dead in his trunk. Which Connor thinks is the kind of cruel, violent murder that can be best explained by a pressing dispute, like one over hundreds of millions of dollars in stolen goods, stolen art. After all, after decades as an art thief, he's well aware of just how useful stolen paintings can be for organized criminals. The most common use of stolen art is as a kind of black market currency or collateral amongst organized crime groups. While art loses much of its open market value once it's stolen, it retains a lesser black market value. Syndicates will use it to facilitate transactions like drug trades. For example, one group might front another a drug shipment and hold a painting as collateral while waiting for a cash payment. If Donati had the art, anyone with a connection to organized crime had a motive to kill him and snatch the paintings for themselves. But Connor doesn't actually think Donati stole the art with this kind of use in mind. As a minor figure in the world of organized crime, he didn't need paintings to shore up black market transactions. He wasn't involved in those kinds of deals. Instead, Connor thinks he had a different idea, one inspired by Connor himself And a story that once again takes us back to the early 70s. According to Connor, in 1974, he and Donati worked together to steal five Wyeth paintings from an estate in Maine. Everything went well, right up until they tried to sell their loot. Donati found a guy who was interested. Connor met the buyer in a Cape Cod parking lot, ready to offload the art and collect his cash. Instead, he was arrested. The buyer was a member of the FBI. The agent decided to rub it in. Connor says he bragged, quote, we've got you now, Connor. It'll take a Rembrandt to get you out of this. Connor took that agent's words to heart. Once he was out on bail, he joined a tour of the Boston Museum of Fine Art. In broad daylight, he grabbed a Rembrandt off the wall and ran. Guards raced after him, as Connor sprinted away, the frame of the Rembrandt got stuck in a doorway. The guards almost caught up to him, but Connor had associates waiting, associates with guns. They shot. Not to kill, just to give Connor the time he needed to free the frame, jump in a car, and escape. Connor profited off that Rembrandt. He did exactly what the FBI agent had joked. He successfully traded the painting to the government in exchange for a reduced sentence. Instead of spending an anticipated 13 years behind bars, he served just 28 months. Now, Donati watched this all happen. He was undoubtedly aware that stolen art can serve as a get out of jail free card, which is why Connor is convicted. Donati stole the Gardner Museum art to get him out of jail, out of the time he was serving for drug-related crimes at the time of the heist. His old buddy was trying to come to his rescue. That would certainly be a devoted act of friendship, but there is not any evidence that Donati was trying to free his partner in crime. However, there is support for a slightly different version of this theory, for the idea that perhaps Donati wanted to get someone else out of jail. Someone he had very pressing reasons to get back on the street. That's what a source tells Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Stephen Kirkchen. The man explains he's an associate of Vincent Ferrara, the animal. He says in 1990, when Ferrara was arrested and Donati went to see him behind bars, Donati didn't just complain about how dangerous the streets were without the animal, He claimed he had a plan to get Ferrara out of jail. Ferrara allegedly told Donati not to try anything. He was in on too many charges to get out. But according to Ferrara's associate, Donati just responded, They'll let you out for these. You'll see. Then, just a few months later, the Gardner Museum was ransacked. The source says that after the heist, Donati came back to Ferrara in jail. Ferrara asked, Was it you? Donati simply said, I told you I would do it. This is huge, especially because this source has no reason to lie. He doesn't want the journalist to print his name, so we don't know exactly who he is, but Kirkjian believes he's credible, and since he is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter, it's safe to assume his judgment is sound. The story provides a clear personal motive for Donati to rob the gardener. It explains why, despite not being the most skilled criminal in Boston, or even an official member of the mafia, he would have risked it. Why, nearly two decades after he cased the gardener with Connor, he finally went for it. The FBI knows about Connor's theories and Kirkjan's new discoveries. Both men have written and spoken publicly about them and Connor actually told the FBI about his suspicions regarding Donati and the Gardner heist immediately after it happened. Unsealed bureau records show they may have taken his intel seriously. They were surveilling Donati in the days leading up to his death, although they don't specify why. Which means he was being followed, just like he told his friends. It's impossible to say if the men he noticed, the ones in black tracksuits, Were these FBI agents, but if they were government officials, they didn't watch closely enough to save his life. Nor did they observe anything that definitively tied Donati to the heist, not according to any available records. Donati could fit the night guard's description of one of the two thieves, but it's not a perfect match. One friend does say he ran into Donati at a bar just before the heist and Donati was carrying a paper bag with two police uniforms in it. But all this evidence is either circumstantial or hearsay. It can't be proven. So investigators pursue other leads. Lots of them. Boston is full of clever organized criminals, and they're all suspects. Especially the ones that have committed complex heists in the past. But these other leads are similar. There's no smoking gun. No solid evidence. Which is why the FBI changes their approach. They quit looking for the thieves and start searching for the art itself. In the years after the heist, the FBI follows whispers about the missing art everywhere, from Florida to the Corsican mob. But one of their targets is right near Boston. His name is William P. Youngworth, and he's a Massachusetts-based antiques dealer. Or, more accurately, an antiques fence, someone who buys and sells stolen goods. He's worked with both Miles Connor and Bobby Donati over the years. The FBI raids Youngworth's home and stores in the 1990s. They find nothing. But then, a journalist with the Boston Herald, Tom Mashberg, decides to follow up with Youngworth. He conducts an interview... Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code Spotify for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. William P. Youngworth says he knows where the gardener art is. But he doesn't stop there. He claims he has access to it. He could even return it under the right circumstances. And he can prove. All of this. One night in August 1997, Youngworth drives journalist Tom Mashberg all the way from Boston to a warehouse in Brooklyn, New York. It's late at night, it's dark, and Mashberg is no art expert. But when Youngworth shows him several cylindrical boxes in a storage unit, then pulls a painting out of one and points his flashlight at the canvas... Mashburg could swear it's the storm on the Sea of Galilee. There's Rembrandt's signature on the rudder of the boat. The cracking but still masterful brushstrokes of paint. The fraying edge where the canvas was cut out of its frame. But there's one more thing. Youngworth tells Mashburg he knows who stole these paintings. He gives him two names. One is David Houghton small-time Boston-area criminal and friend of Miles Connor. He's been a long-time suspect in the heist. The other name is Bobby Donati. This seems like a real break in the case, or rather cases, because while the original lead was about finding the paintings, suddenly there's information about Bobby Donati and David Houghton stealing those paintings together. And that's a break in Bobby's murder case, too. The odds that he was killed because of what he knew about the heist or for the art itself go way up plus there are real leads on who might have done it or know who did it like houghton or his friends but there's a problem youngworth gives Mashburg some paint chips to prove the authenticity of the art testing reveals the chips do come from a rembrandt era painting But the pigments don't match the storm on the Sea of Galilee. There's no proof the art Mashberg saw was the real deal. And when the FBI searches the Brooklyn warehouse a few months later, there's nothing there. The painting is gone. The lead collapses and the case stalls yet again for over a decade. In 2010, the FBI receives a new lead and follows it up to Maine. Maine two separate sources point them towards one particular house, the former summer home of a Boston mob associate named Bobby Gorenti. Gorenti is dead now, but he used to be a good friend of Bobby Donati's. Anthony Amore, the Gardner Museum's current director of security, accompanies the FBI on their trip. The house they find is long abandoned, cold, and desolate in the winter snow. Inside, they look for the hiding place their sources have described. They find it on the second floor. Amori explains, quote, There was a small door, like half the size of a normal door, and you open it up, and it looks like a place you can keep pots and pans, relatively large. And I flashed my light in there, and you could see further in there was a hiding spot. Definitely could have fit our art back there. The art isn't there, though. If it was at some point, it's moved on. But there's someone who might know how, when, and to whom it might have moved. Gorenti's widow, Aline. Amore and the FBI pay her a visit. And she tells them, yes, her husband had those paintings. But only for a while. She didn't like it. She knew they were dangerous. That's why she sharply remembers a dinner in 2003 in Portland, Maine. They ate with another couple. The men went out to the parking lot halfway through the meal. After a life married to Garenti, Aline knew better than to ask what they were doing. But on the way home, he told her anyway. According to her, he said, quote, You can stop worrying. I got rid of those paintings. Once again, in a search for the Gardner paintings... Bobby Donati's name pops up. He was a good friend of Guarenti's, meaning the men might have worked together to pull off the heist, or Donati might have given the art to Guarenti for safekeeping until he could use it to negotiate Ferrara's freedom. But again, this is speculation based on hearsay. The FBI needs those paintings, or at least some of the stolen art, to make any concrete connection between Bobby Donati and the Gardner heist so they keep digging. The man the Gorentes had dinner with that night in Portland was yet another Bobby, Bobby Gentile, a mafia associate based in Hartford, Connecticut. The FBI searches his house, where they find another likely hiding place, a large dugout hole under Gentile's garage. But still, there's no art. However, it does seem like the FBI thinks they're making some serious progress they must have information that hasn't been released to the public because at a press conference on March 13, 2013, they released this statement. Quote, We've determined that in the years since the theft, the art was transported to Connecticut and to the Philadelphia area. With a high degree of confidence, we believe those responsible for the theft were members of a criminal organization with a base in the mid-Atlantic states and in New England. In other words, the FBI publicly states their belief that the Gardner heists involved people from the New England mob. Then, in 2015, the Bureau announces it knows who committed the heist and that both thieves are dead. Dead like Donati. But the FBI doesn't give his name. They don't give any names. And most notable of all, their high degree of confidence is still lacking the most important piece of proof, the art itself. Until they've actually recovered the missing masterpieces, the case can't be closed. Today at the Gardner Museum, there are empty frames where the stolen works once hung. They're somber reminders of what was lost. Museums are meant to make art available to everyone, to provide access. All of Boston was robbed that night in 1990, all the people who should have had the chance to feel the silent intake of breath pulsing off the canvas of Vermeer's concert or to see Christ wise and calm amidst the chaos of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. But the thing is, Boston in 1990 belonged to the mob. Its people were in the chokehold of infighting, intimidation, and violence. The FBI was constantly trying to smoke them out. Then the gardener, for all its beauty and lofty ideals didn't exist apart from that. In the end, it also belonged to the mob. And so did Bobby Donati. He was part of it, and he was beholden to it. Perhaps he felt he had no choice. He grew up around it in an Italian immigrant family and a mafia-dominated neighborhood. He would have seen the power of Boston's made men, from the time he could toddle down the block and stop by the neighbor's yards. That was his world, the world he was born into. And in the end, it's fairly certain that it killed him. Whether he was a casualty of the infighting, or whether he died because of his connection to the Gardner art, it's pretty safe to say it happened because of the mob. Today, organized crime is much less powerful in the U.S., But Donati's unsolved murder and those empty frames at the Gardner attest to an era in which the rules of organized crime govern cities like Boston. The Gardner Museum is still offering a $10 million reward for information leading to the arts recovery. That's the largest bounty ever offered by a private institution. But to this day, nothing has been recovered. The frames at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum sit empty, and Bobby Donati's murder remains unsolved. If you have any information about Bobby Donati or the Gardner heist, visit tips.fbi.gov or contact your local FBI field office. Thanks for listening. We'll be back every Monday with another cold case. For more information on Bobby Donati and the Gardner heist, amongst the many sources we used, we found Stephen Kirkchin's Master Thieves, the Boston Gangsters Who Pulled Off the World's Greatest Art Heist, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from ParCast with executive producers Max Cutler and Drew Cole. Our head of programming is Julian bois This show was developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Trent Williamson as our senior production specialist. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Nora Battelle, edited by Karis Allen and Giles Hofseth, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor, with sound design by Russell Nash, and produced by Bruce Kotovich. I'm Carter Roy.